What are the costs diplomatically of uh, America binding itself so, so closely to Israel when the Arab countries and kind of the larger global South clearly is not on Israel's side? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, October 25th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to discuss the latest developments in the Middle East as Israel prepares for a ground invasion of Gaza and the Biden administration works behind the scenes to contain the fallout. We'll also discuss Julia's recent conversation with former Ambassador Dennis Ross, the diplomat who nearly brokered a two-state solution more than 20 years ago before the negotiations fell apart. Is there still hope for a peaceful resolution? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy wednesday everybody i'm ben landy filling in for our pal peter hamby who is uh on a plane back to los angeles after hosting an event with ron Klain in washington last night but uh happy to step in here and even happier to be doing it with julia yaffe who has been uh essential reading the last few weeks. Julia, thanks for being here. Of course. Hi, Ben. So you and I were talking last week about how the Biden administration has been pretty successfully triangulating between rhetorically standing by Israel, pressuring them to limit the loss of innocent life, which sort of puts the administration in the middle of public opinion domestically, and then also trying to scare off Hezbollah, Iran, Russia, anyone else from getting more involved in this conflict than they already are. What, what do you think is sort of the biggest challenge for the Biden administration at this moment as Israel is preparing a ground invasion 
And how do you think they have been handling this crisis overall? Well, I think the Biden administration faces two challenges. Two if you really boil down all the challenges. But I would say one one bucket is the international challenges and the other bucket contains the domestic challenges. On the first, on the international challenges, you know, there's always the worry that Secretary Blinken outlined this Sunday or last Sunday on the talk shows that this could tip into a broader war. There have been skirmishes on the border between Israel and Lebanon, with both Israel and Lebanon evacuating tens of thousands of people from these border areas. You know, and the question is, is Iran going to pull the trigger and open a second front? And what would the US do in that uh, scenario? Obviously, there wouldn't be American boots on the ground, but what kind of response would the US come up with to kind of beat back Hezbollah and Iran. There's also the worry that the kind of normalization that the Abraham Accords were starting to establish in the Middle East would all just unravel. And the fact, in part because of how Israel is waging its campaign against Hamas in Gaza with a brutal siege and a brutal bombing campaign and apparently perhaps a ground invasion, that Arab leaders are rebuffing Biden. They refused to meet with him last week when he went to the region. And that's tied in with the challenge that, you know, in being an ally to Israel and sending military aid to Israel and even sending military advisors, uh, there was just the news reported by Axios that the U.S. sent a three-star Marine general to help advise the Israelis on the ground invasion and that Secretary Lloyd Austin has been kind of back-channeling with the Israelis and has been a kind of conduit for the American advice. So what are the costs diplomatically of uh, America binding itself so, so closely to Israel when the Arab countries and kind of the larger global South clearly is not on Israel's side? If you remember, we talked here about the UN General Assembly in September, and how Biden spoke more about development and the global South and the things that the global South wanted more than he spoke about Ukraine. He was clearly making a play for this uh, big swath of nations that Russia and China have been making a play for. And, you know, what is this going to do to that? And then there's the domestic challenge, which is that, you know, the Democratic base, especially the progressive younger part of it is getting away from Biden. I think Biden has made the calculation that despite all of the fervor that we've seen on the streets, on social media, that is pro-Palestinian, he has bet, and the polls mostly bear him out, that it is still, that supporting Israel this strongly is a broadly popular position, including with Democrats. But, you know, this younger, more progressive part of the base vehemently disagrees. And even if they don't dent the polls on this issue that much, are they going to come out in 2024 when it looks like the margins are going to be super tight? And, you know, will they remember this in a year's time when it's time to go to the polls or when it's time for Arab Americans, Muslim Americans who feel betrayed by Biden to go to the polls in swing states like Michigan? Yeah, Julia, it's such a sensitive, sensitive issue. Um, you know, the, the Biden administration has been pressuring Israel to delay this ground invasion 
of Gaza to give more time for hostage negotiations, which seem like they, they may be moving in a positive direction, but also providing aid to Palestinians, theoretically, perhaps some kind of humanitarian corridor to avoid more casualties. This all feels especially important after Israel was blamed, uh, wrongly as it turns out, for bombing a hospital in Gaza. But it really revealed just the the depth of animosity towards Israel, also depths Mm -hmm. of anti-Semitism that that are really shocking and terrifying that were just sort of barely under the surface. Are there fears inside the diplomatic community and the policy community in Washington that if Israel sort of oversteps militarily and misplays this moment of public sympathy and solidarity, that, that the consequences could be really, truly bleak? I think that has been the concern all along. And in some ways, that has kind of been the understanding that whatever sympathy and empathy Israel was able to gain in the aftermath of the horrific terrorist attacks on October 7th, that it would fritter them away, you know, with progressives in America, with the global south, with the uh, Arab countries in the region no matter what it did in terms of military response. But this is this is a really big response. And there's a lot of, from what I hear from, you know, friends and colleagues in the kind of foreign policy community here in Washington is just a real, like you said, bleakness, but also just a hopelessness that, that nothing good will come of this, that the ground incursion will make this part look like child's play, that it will harden global opinion against Israel even more than it has already hardened. And that uh, even if Israel gets rid of Hamas in this operation, which, I mean, it's, it's hard to do. I mean, ask the U.S. How, how the global war on terror went, that, you know, what will rise up in its place, right? What, uh, what kind of resistance will rise up in its place? And will it, all of this drive Palestinians even more into the arms of Hamas, uh, whom they will consider, you know, the only people who are willing to stand up and fight for them. I think also from what I hear is like, there's kind of two camps of thinking. One camp believes that this is so bad and will get so much worse that it will make a political solution impossible. And others that believe that it is so bad and it's going to become even more horrific and that it'll be so horrific that it will actually force a political solution because it will kind of make both sides realize that if you don't address the underlying issue, that this will will just do this every couple of years and each time it'll be worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, clearly, Julia, it seems like the status quo was not stable, that there there needs to be some kind of solution here. And I think you're right that the, the, the lack of conversation about a political solution in this moment is part of what is fueling the, the complex tangle of emotions among some Democrats on the left and, and certainly the outrage in the Arab world. We've got to go to a quick break, but let's get into this more when we return. I want to ask you about the history of the peace process and whether there is a possible return to a two-state solution. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast welcome back everybody julia earlier this week you had talked to dennis ross the former diplomat who worked for carter reagan bush one especially Bill Clinton. He, he negotiated the peace talks in 2000, which ultimately fell apart. One of the things that most struck me from your conversation was this sense that there was maybe briefly during the Clinton administration, this moment where a two-state solution felt like it was truly within grasp. And once that was lost and it slipped away, it, it feels in retrospect like that opportunity was just sort of gone forever. Do you think that's true or, or is that just sort of the pessimism of hindsight in this moment where everything feels so unsettled and, and like there's no way forward? So I'm going to give you a long answer, which I know is uncharacteristic of me. But <laughs> <laughs> but the, re the reason I decided to interview Ambassador Ross, who was the lead negotiator, uh, U.S. negotiator in 2000, is that I personally come from a Zionist background. I went to Jewish day schools where there was a lot of kind of Zionist, let's say, curriculum. But it was a totally different time. It was the 1990s when Itzhak Rabin was our hero. And it seemed like every year there was, you know, another peace agreement being signed, and that we were just moving inexorably to this two-state solution and toward peace. And the, you know, the Israeli teachers who taught us and the Israel that we visited at school was very much 
obsessed with this, like, we're going to get there really, really soon. We're going to get to peace. And it kind of culminated in 2000 when it seemed like we got very close, that both the Israelis and the Palestinians gave up more than they were comfortable with, but we were so close. And then it the Palestinians walked away from the deal and the second intifada began, which that was when we saw the suicide bombings of buses and cafes and nightclubs. And it was just like constant horrific terror. And it was where it was basically the moment that killed the left, the Israeli left, the peacenik kind of left, because it was like, well, the thinking was like, these people won't take a deal they won't take any kind of deal. And so we should just protect ourselves, kind of get ready for the long haul and just try to kind of grind this out. And I think that fell apart on October 7th. Uh, So I wanted to go back and to talk to the lead American negotiator, especially because I think the younger left, the progressive left came, you know, was born after 9-11, was born into a world after an America after the Iraq invasion, and an America shaped by George W. Bush, and by Trump and the evangelicals on the Republican right, that were were just so militantly pro Israel, and that they grew up with an America that just sends bombs to Israel. The what I grew up with was America as the middleman between the two that's pushing the two constantly towards some kind of political resolution to this conflict. And there was a kind of before and after. So I wanted to talk uh, before and after 2000. So I wanted to talk to the lead American negotiator about what happened in that moment, how close did we really get? And was that really the end? And and also what a political solution could look like in the future if if and when this war ever ends. Yeah. And by the way, this this was a fascinating conversation. So for people who want to check that out and read the whole thing, I, I encourage you to find that on Puck, uh, Julia's interview with Dennis Ross. But um, Julia, I, you know, it, it's so interesting hearing you say that. Like, I, I also kind of came of age in the 90s, and it was this moment where it felt like a two-state solution w- was always just sort of over the horizon. There was a sense of optimism. Right. I think we've been pretty far away from that for for more than 10 years now, especially under Benjamin Netanyahu. But frankly, this this brutal strike by Hamas on October 7, the devastating Israeli response that we're seeing right now, it feels like a nail in the coffin. Do you think Ross would disagree with that? Or, or, or do you disagree with that? So what Ross told me was basically, you know, if the Israelis are able to meet their military objectives in rooting out Hamas, which is hard to do, but, you know, the U.S. basically did it with ISIS, basically did it with Al-Qaeda, basically, right? For a long time, we haven't talked about counterterrorism in the US. That's no longer the hot, you know, national security, foreign policy issue. But his point was that if you go in and do that and just leave, if you don't build the institutions, if you don't help set the Palestinians up for success, then we're going to be right back where we started. But he was, you know, at one point, as we were wrapping up our conversation, I just kind of let out a sigh, like, and (laughs) as in like, as in like, I was like, wow, that meaning like, I don't think that sounds very optimistic at all. And he and he said, well, that's the diplomatic response, isn't it? (laughs) Well, sure. It's like, what what are they going to do? I mean, you know, if they bomb Gaza into rubble, are they going to 
rebuild it? Is there a plan to return to the negotiating table when all this is over? Because it's it just seems so hard to imagine a peace process on the other side of a ground yeah. invasion, and at least not for a generation. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Bibi Netanyahu was prime minister before in the 90s, and it was the collapse of his government that ushered in the Camp David negotiations in 2000. Because Israelis were like, well, this this guy isn't working. So maybe, I mean, and it seems like there's a political reckoning in the offing for Bibi after this. The problem, as I see it, is that, and I, this is what I wrote in you know, my first letter after the October 7th attacks, is that I don't think either side wants a two-state solution anymore, although maybe they will after this. But going into it, I don't think either side did. And you see it on social media, both from the hardcore Israeli side and the hardcore Palestinian side, each side wants a one-state solution. Each each side wants river to the sea. And I would say that some of the more kind of optimistic, progressive scenarios for this are like, well, yes, let's have one country called Israel-Palestine, where all Israelis and Palestinians live together, and there's a right of return for Palestinian refugees to Israel. And um, yeah, and that'll just and that'll be that. And that's the just solution. But, you know, in my I posed that question to Ambassador Ross. And I said, do you see that happening? And he, you know, still has deep ties in the region. And he was like, it's a pipe dream. Like these are two real national identities, real national cultures that you can't wish away and you can't erase. And given the history and given the fact that they both think they have a full claim to the full thing, they will be constantly trying to dominate one another. But again, maybe it gets so bad that we get to a place where people are like, you know, this is not ideal. Both sides think that, you know, they don't want a two-state solution, but they want the status quo even less or the status quo ante even less. But God, who knows? I mean... It's just it's it's just going to get more and more horrible, and um, I'm going to have more and more daily panic attacks about it. Yeah, I, I Julia, I wish I could disagree with you, but I, I mean, I, I think um, intuitively that feels right. It, it's hard to imagine anything changing until things get worse, and that hopefully on the other side of this, uh, there is a recognition that something fundamentally needs to change, and that it changes for the better. But uh, it, it's very hard to be optimistic in conditions like this. Well. I, I will say one thing, though. So at Peter's event last night, I ran into an old friend who is Palestinian-American and is, uh, let's say, very prominent in democratic politics. And we hugged each other, and I asked if her family was okay there in the West Bank. And, you know, I expected her to be angrier and more pessimistic than she was. Uh, and she said, you know, I've been in politics all my life, and I know that when people want to solve something, they will. They're ju- we just have to get to a place where people on both sides want to solve this badly enough. You know, to have that kind of clarity and equanimity when your own family is in the line of danger is um, admirable and gave me a lot of hope and optimism. I've been trying to hold on to that. Julia, we've got to wrap it up there, but uh, thanks as always for coming on. I appreciate you being here. Of course. Good to talk to you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. 
As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.